Hello, this is the One Fish podcast for people building high trust, self-responsible cultures which move fast and are genuinely uplifting places to work. I'm Carrie Beddingfield, I'm the founder of One Fish Two Fish, and in this podcast I will be in conversation with my One Fish colleagues and our extended team to bring the concepts we use every day in our work into focus, from self-organizing to agile meetings, and from culture hacking to beauty and business. Today, I'm joined by Alan Wick, who most people would describe as a coach or a consultant, neither of which really describe who Alan is and what he does. His career so far has been a game of two halves, so 25 years founding, growing and selling businesses in a variety of fields, uh, both here in the UK and also in the US and Japan, and the last 15 years supporting growing businesses. And at a rough count, we think a thousand or very, very close. One of the things that Alan is known for is getting into the emotional side of growing a business, as well as obviously being completely fluent in the commercial side. And this is something that business owners find extremely powerful. For us today, that emotional side is what we want to get into. What can we understand and learn from that fast, raw environment of a startup or a growing business that sheds some light on change and culture in a larger business. So firstly, welcome Alan. Hey Carrie, lovely to be on. Delighted to have you and I have to say you've been on my um, target list for quite a while now, Um, especially as I know you have your own radio show. How's that going? Very well, thank you. Where can we find you? Meridian FM, Um, it's on TuneIn Radio Uh, on the last Sunday of every month and there's a listen again page on the Meridian FM website. Brilliant and Alan can you start off by talking to us about what do you mean by culture what does culture mean in the startup world? Yeah it's interesting I would say that the focus of startups by definition is survival Um, and here in the UK there are about 400,000 startups every year and of those about three quarters of them uh, don't survive past the three-year mark and that's usually because of a combination of lack of cash capability timing obviously the product or the service may not be right so honestly speaking the first few years of a startup culture or the behaviors that the business owner wants to see or have in their uh, in their business is really not a priority. Mm. And so tell us more about your work then on, help us understand your work on the emotional side of running a business and how that relates to culture when you have a business owner who is hell-bent on having his startup or growing business just survive, let alone thrive. Yeah, there's... there's um a huge piece here about a relationship with money mm. and, and why um, a, a, an individual wants to go into business and, and what is it that's driving them. And there's a huge variety of reasons, Carrie. Um, if I go to the extremes first and then we'll look at the stuff in the middle, mm. on, on one extreme, they're a, a very purpose-led, values-led, usually socially aware 
possibly environmentally aware uh, uh, business owners who want to do something good. They want to be a force for good. The whole thing that's driving them is around making a difference uh, in the world in some way, some do the force for good. And money in, in that situation uh, is really a low priority. Mm. And then other, and, and to some extent, I'd almost say it's a dirty word. I'm taking it to an extreme, but I've come across business owners like that. And at the other extreme, there are people who are solely driven. It's more towards the apprentice and those sort of programs where you're seeing the extremes of making money. We don't care how we get there. We've got a figure in mind. And if we trample over a whole load of people, including our own staff, we don't care. Uh, Uber is a very good example of that. It's been very well publicized. So, And, and of course, there are lots of people in the middle. Um, and in, in my work, um, I'm usually trying to get business owners to, to see that there is a healthy balance between mm. those two and that either extreme tends not to last long. And so can you help help make the link back to um, bigger companies who are not owned by one individual um, and help us understand what this relationship to money and that balance between cultural and commercial, what that looks like in a big organisation? I think big organisations that I've come across understand the word culture. They'll usually have articulated it. They'll, their definition of it is usually the same. I think we're, there's a very common definition of behaviour. The behaviours in the staff, the team, that the business wants to see and mm-hmm. to try to articulate that, define it and not just do that because after all, we know that Enron had an amazing set mm-hmm. of values, but of course it meant nothing. It was just make as much money uh, and try not to get caught doing it. So the key point about large companies and doing it effectively is whether or not it's implemented seriously through the company. Is it measured Uh, Are there stated KPIs? What about appraisals, hiring, recruiting, behaviours throughout the company constantly being reinforced day in, day out? And that can take many years in a large company if that work hasn't been done before. On the other hand, with a small company, uh, and let's let's define that as up to a, a few hundred people, where the owners are probably still involved. They probably still know the majority of the names of the people in the business. It's it's more like a speedboat. It's relatively easier over a year or 18 months to define, articulate behaviours and then drive them into the business. So what can we learn about developing culture in a large business from your experience in small businesses where, where everything's faster um, it's closer, the knocks are harder. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think it's about the size of the teams. There's a variety of opinions on this, but roughly between 30 to 70 people, anything larger than that, and it becomes very difficult for, for people to feel that they're part of a team. Uh, and so there are larger companies now that are beginning to have 
parts of the companies that are that are set up uh, in team in smaller teams sometimes mm-hmm. even in in different buildings for example departmental whether it's marketing or research and development or sales or hr where actually they're devolving from being these massive businesses all in one and they're going into smaller teams because the smaller teams are that much more agile and they're able to to get results, try things, develop them, uh, make smaller mistakes and then learn from them than bigger companies, which by definition tend to be managing themselves to manage the status quo. That's Mm. why they become slower and that's why the new uh, um, way of of competing is all about speed these days it's all about speed rather than size isn't that interesting so it's almost a um, <clears throat> uh, um, where organizations are providing their own competition regulation and breaking themselves up to a certain yeah. extent, taking control of that process of breaking breaking yeah. themselves down into smaller parts um, what about the phenomenon of that single force of nature, which um, we see a lot in small businesses, um, and which to a certain extent can also flow around in large businesses? You have people who are stars, very um, uh, CEOs with huge personalities, where there's friction between the cultural plan and one individual. What can we learn from your experience of small business, single forces of nature? Well, I, I'd I'd almost say that unless there is a force of nature, yeah. a startup ain't going to be a startup. Yeah. It's not going to work. It's not going to survive. It's that singularity, that absolute determination. I mean, I can think of one client I've been working with for the last six or seven years that's just going through a sale, having built up a business from nothing with no money, um, and uh, getting a factory up and running, borrowing money, scrimping and saving, getting government grants, and developing a successful food manufacturing business from nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's now going through a, a successful exit. And that individual is a very, very determined person who wants things done a, in a particular way. And without that determination, um, that business would never have survived, let alone thrived. Mm. I think there's then a, a point, and this is one of the reasons that the, this particular owner is going through a sale process where there was a choice of either handing over to quote unquote professional management, mm. bringing in quote unquote the adults mm. to develop it beyond the five to 10 million range to 20, 30, 40, or whether to, uh, to sell to a larger company. Right. Um, and what, what was the conclusion? And this, this individual, after a lot of discussion, decided to sell because they didn't want to see their company being run in what they felt would be a very uh, um, bureaucratic way. Right. Right. So that was that particular choice. Um, in, in larger companies, of course, that can have, in mm-hmm. my opinion, I've seen some very destructive effects from that and there's a lot of examples around in the banking world we've read uh, a lot about it where a single owner I'm thinking of a particular big um, shop at the moment shopping uh, retail company Mm. where those and there are several examples of of this where the owner has got such a, a great deal of power and they haven't really ever devolved it 
uh, and had a board that they're then uh, reporting to and it be, uh, and it can go very wrong uh, and have a very destructive culture in it. So um, what are the options then if you work in a um, large or small business and there's a there's a force of nature at the helm um, running at least to a certain extent counter to the culture <clears throat> or perhaps they say that they espouse the culture but their actions undermine the culture that you're trying to develop so yeah it's quite the, common but what what other options are there <laughs> well there are it's i would say it depends if if there's a group of owners carry mm. that are that have a, a variety of of opinions i'll give you give an example of a, a well established professional services company 25 years old with four equity owners divided equally, 25% each. And three of the owners disagreed hugely with one of the, right. of the owners on the culture, on the behaviours they wanted to see. In fact, the, the, the individual who was the odd man out, so to speak, um, was the person who says, we don't need culture, we just need to make money. Mm. You know, it's a culture thing, it's all very tree-huggy, forget it. I'm not interested. And so the answer in that example was after months of discussion um, and, uh, you know, I was a, an accredited mediator at CEDA a number of years ago. And this is where it becomes very useful with me trying to mediate between the four owners. It was obvious it wasn't going to work and the company was stuck at a certain level of turnover mm. as a leader in its field and wouldn't go beyond it while this disagreement disagreements yeah. took place. Yeah. Something I call partneritis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they had an acute case of partneritis. <laughs> paracetamol wasn't going to do the trick. No. And so, really, it, it it was a it became a matter of negotiating mm. the three buying the fourth one out, mm. which they didn't really want to do. So it became quite heated over many months. Yeah. Um, getting valuations of the business yeah. and then raising the money to buy the other partner out, which they did with my help. And what can I say? The business has gone on to increase by 20% a year in a market that's moribund mm. after the shackles were released because they then, the three owners that were left, were able to unite around the way they wanted to run the company and the energy raised amongst the team from what had been a very negative mm. situation was just unleashed. So it's a hugely important thing where there's a difference of opinion uh, about these matters. And, and relating that back to um, large organisations where you can see a similar, though the format of the the um, and the structure of the business might be different. Nevertheless, there are often de um, major deviations between um, the behaviour of senior people and the culture that we are all supposed to um, to be aligning around. And what's your take on that? Having worked at the cutting, the kind of ble bleeding edge of of partneritis in smaller companies. Well, they can. Tear, they can tear companies apart. I mean, it can be very, very destructive. And to your earlier point about what happens if people in senior positions are more do as I say, mm. not as I do, um, 
people that then the people with them or under them simply don't believe them and there's no question that they underperform their potential yeah the example i just gave so in any organization large or small actually doing what we say on the tin and really believing in it um and look if the culture is we're out to make money no matter what and that's what we're going to do and perhaps it's a very competitive market mm-hmm. where the focus what about large organizations that are public uh, and they've got to satisfy shareholders and they're in uh, the stock market uh, say you know FTSE and so on ultra big companies and they've got to go for quarterly results and that's the arena they've chosen to play in so by definition the pressure is on the board to satisfy the shareholders satisfy the stock market they're probably all on stock options or incentives to increase the share price and that goes through the organization so I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. No. I'm saying that it needs to be articulated and yep. clear yep. so that there's an alignment yep. around it. Don't yep. pretend, don't start using all these soft words like integrity and trust and mm. when it honestly speaking, that is nothing to do with what the company's about. Mm. It's the hypocrisy that doesn't work. It's when things are congruent around whether it's money making or doing good or whatever yeah. it happens to be when there's alignment and then the potential of the businesses are released. And is there a case for, um, in the same way that we have sort of situational leadership to have situational culture where there could be a narrative that in, in a year's time, we need to be in a position where we are behaving in this way. In the meantime, we are in a period of survival or we are in a period of intense change. So we need a, a slightly different set of behaviors or, or, or um, we need to put ourselves in a different kind of soup in order to get to the to the next stage in a way that people feel like yeah I, that's believable I, I understand that that makes sense yes and that's usually because of external forces mm-hmm. um, for example I, I recently worked with a company that was a smaller version of what happened with Nokia or Blackberry. There's mm-hmm. this famous um, saying about uh, a phrase that I thought was spot on by the, the, the uh, CEO of Nokia about being on a burning platform. What happens if you're running a business and it's been going for many years and suddenly there's a disruptor? Yes. What do you do? You're back okay. in startup mode almost, aren't you? You're back in survival mode. So mm. I think the key to that point is communication. It's got to be communicated because people are in their jobs. Mm. They don't necessarily see beyond the, the world they're living in. Even marketing and salespeople will yeah. still be living in the world of their products and services mm. and maybe not understanding the threat from a disruptor and how quickly it could affect the company. So as long as the, um, the leaders, the management of the business communicate why we need to go into a survival mode, defensive mode, attack mode, whatever they're going to do uh, for the next six months or a year. And then once we've got through this patch, then return or start to create the behaviors that's fine but what I sometimes see is that then it's not communicated and then people feel under pressure without really understanding why yes understood yeah 
And um, uh, one of the other areas I'd love to explore with you is, in, and I, we're going to do a bigger, for everybody listening, we're going to do a bigger um, podcast just on this um, soon, and that's self-responsibility. So I do want to touch on it today. Um, in a small organisation, everybody is closer to the customer, closer to the vision, closer to the um, uh, leadership, the money, closer to everything. And and where if, if there is a lack of self-responsibility, it comes out extremely quickly in a small business and sometimes quite painfully. Uh, many of the organisations I work with are very um, explicitly trying to move to a more self-responsible adult to adult accountable culture, trying to undo some of the harm they've done by parenting people a bit too much in the past. What can we learn about the nature of self-responsibility from your work with startups that might just help us think about self-responsibility in a large organization? Um, that, that it's stated, um, it, it may be, be a, a, a core value. It could be a core value in itself. It's a choice. Yes. And if it isn't a core value, if it, many companies choose things like integrity, trust as a word, and yes. I, I usually advise that there are no more than three core values because people can't remember more than three. So self-responsibility could come under one of the other words, but it, mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly important to articulate it. And then this is the key point is that the recruitment stage where bigger companies, as they grow and they get beyond a certain size, mm -hmm. three or 400, tend, that tends to get diluted. Um, what and, does Sorry, go on. Uh, sorry, and so and so, where a smaller company will be very close, as you said, and to the cutting edge, to the coal face, and they're hiring people almost automatically, almost without stating it, that they're mm -hmm. self-responsible, self-starters, people who like the idea of coming into a small company and being responsible for a particular area. As companies grow, I see that diluted. And so a restatement of self-responsibility, defining processes that go into recruiting people who have evidence of being mm -hmm. self-starters. And so what have they led outside of business? What have they done in their lives? Give me yeah. evidence yeah. of things where you've taken responsibility for something and, and hiring for that. Yeah. That tends to get lost. So I say that larger organizations who want to get back to that or want to have that uh, behavior need to focus on it and I'm afraid it may be rather painful for several mm -hmm. years because a lot of people who are rather hiding uh, behind uh, I'll just wait until I'm uh, uh, told what to do and uh, yeah. uh, are reactive won't like that and there'll be a period of several years usually while that's uh, yeah. so to speak flushed out and newer more self-responsible people are brought in yeah it can take a long time and how how do you find the how, how do you handle a situation where um there's a lot of chance about empowerment um yes again that word i am tired of hearing myself say but i can't think of a better one um where organizations want people to be empowered people want to be empowered and certainly they want the control and the um authority and status and identity and so on 
and they're not quite yet ready to take full responsibility and accountability. So there's this sort of gap between um, the power that they want and the responsibility they're willing to take. And what do you see in small businesses that we could learn from? Well, even in a small business, again, 50 to 100, couple hundred people, I still see this as a giant wheel, a very big, heavy wheel that takes time to turn. Yeah. So at one side of the wheel are are management leaders who want to retain control. And on the other side of the wheel, there's a variety of opinions of, I'd love to have more self-responsibility, more Mm. empowerment. I want to be empowered. I want to do more, but they just won't let me to... I'm afraid of taking responsibility mm-hmm. and I hope they don't give it to me. And, uh, and so it's a question of gradually turning the wheel. So the management uh, leaders are gradually devolving power and the, the, the team, depending mm-hmm. on where they are in the company, are gradually taking it on and, and therefore for, uh, creating a virtuous circle. Mm-hmm. I usually find in these situations, which is a vicious circle of the management saying they're, they're rubbish, they're useless, they yeah. can't trust them with anything, yeah. I have to do everything myself. And the team saying, I can't believe that I have to go and ask permission yeah. to buy a stapler. And it's undoing that gradually and slowly yes so I guess and I guess the um the flip side of that is okay everybody you're all going to manage your own budgets from now on and so on and you know and and, um have all this decision making and power and then the feeling of the first time that um of doing doing that and, and making a mistake or um that hitting against some friction from somebody else in the organization and feeling like you've been left out to dry that you haven't been kind of supported on that journey and in in my head there's a bit of a kind of um child to teenager to adult part that the child wants lots of fun and the teenager wants all the control and the responsibility and they want the freedom yeah uh, really quite willing to take the they think they want the responsibility they're not quite willing to um to shoulder it yet um but that period is relatively short. It can feel unending. And I think if you dip your toe in the water, try and um, express a bit more, um, try and share a bit more responsibility out. Um, initially, it can be quite painful. Uh, but that is relatively short lived if you help people navigate their way through it. And out of it come these great adults. Yeah. And combined not only with the intention, but some sort of system or process mm-hmm that's put in place yeah um, that that again depending on the size of the organization yeah. and what systems and processes they believe in what flavors of yeah. those yeah um, but then then it can work very nicely and i think that there's something that i is worth referring to with this that all we're talking about has got a context of managing change mm. it's all about changing something big mm. in an organization whether it's self-responsibility or anything else and i think there's a, a really amazing piece of work that i refer to by dr mary lippitt called managing complex change mm. uh, where there are five components and you've got to have these uh, in place uh, otherwise something won't work and their their vision skills incentives resources and an action plan 
and it's Googleable, and you can find it uh, on the internet. And if you if one of those is missing, then it's going to lead to a blocker of some kind. So by having an, an awareness of those five, I found that that helps manage those sorts of changes successfully in, in particularly the larger organisations. Mm. And we'll include the details for that on the show notes. So one final question. Um, we've, we've talked quite a lot about um, self-responsibility and how we want uh, how, how organisations can help people to take more responsibility and kind of become a fully fledged adult um, in that that particular role. A question for you is: if if you like me hear lots of uh, leaders and managers saying, "Well, my people are rubbish and they won't kind of take responsibility, or they won't um, they won't do this and they won't do that." Um, to what extent? does the organisation itself or the leaders themselves, do they need to take responsibility for creating the conditions in which operating in a childlike way has become the most, the best option, um, become the best choice for people? Uh, it's crucial. It's absolutely essential. And that, that what we were talking about earlier about the do as I say, don't do as I do, just doesn't work. Mm. If, if there's a serious attempt to want to get self-responsibility throughout the organization, it has to start at the top. And that can be a very big piece of work and, and where there are blockers and people who just aren't ready to do that. They may be talking the talk, but they often aren't walking the walk. And so that then becomes, in my opinion, a question of selling. And that's to some extent my job, the benefits of what the organization will look like and how the organization will perform better by actually acting in a way that encourages self-responsibility and set, and asking people for solutions and also allowing mistakes more towards the open way of managing businesses, more towards agile, all the, the ways of looking at developing uh, uh, people that is a much more positive approach. And look, we're in a, a, a 2019 where millennials and uh, uh, people who are born it since uh, since in the 21st century are now coming to the workplace, and that they're just not going to be to hang around anymore yeah. in organisations that don't work like that. The best and the brightest are looking for organisations that will treat them as adults and give them that responsibility and that more than anything and their engagement will get the best out of them. We're, we're decades past command and control now. Mm. And, and that's why it's so important for the leaders to really uh, take that on board themselves uh, for it to work in the organization. Alan, thank you so much. You've been Pleasure. listening to the One Fish Comms podcast with Carrie Beddingfield and with Alan Wick. You can find Alan on Twitter via at Alan Wick and also online www.alanwick.com. And you can tune in to his uh, radio programme on Meridian FM on Sunday nights via TuneIn Radio. I'm Atsy Beddingfield and we are at One Fish Comms. See you next time. Thank you for listening to this One Fish podcast. 
I hope you found the conversation thought-provoking and perhaps it raised some questions or puzzles or thoughts for you about your business or organisation. If you hear anything in these podcasts that sparks your interest, tweet us at OneFishComs or you can even book a call straight into my diary if you think we should be talking. All the details, plus all the references to books, people, concepts or anything else we touched on are in the show notes below.